coming up on Pass the Secret Sauce. You know, everyone's saying, oh my God, the worst thing to invest in is real estate. And I'm a data scientist. I'm a math guy. I'm a numbers guy. And I'm looking at the numbers and I'm saying, but these numbers look so much better than they did two years ago. How mm-hmm. could you possibly say it's the, the worst time to invest? It seems like all the time that you guys were investing the last three or four years, those were bad times. This now seems like a good time, but nobody wanted to listen to me. My, my family threatened to basically stop talking to me if I invested <laughs> in real estate. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Shields. On Pass the Secret Sauce, we unscramble the life stories, skills, and secrets from the most wicked smart minds and interesting people to uncover their experience and recipes for success that will help you get an edge on your own life. My goal is to help you rein in on the chaos that life throws at us by learning from other high achievers. If you're new to the show, we have episodes with founders, CEOs, investors, and leaders. So if you like to learn and are motivated to improve your life, then kick back and listen to our guests pass their secret sauce. Today on Pass the Secret Sauce, we have Neil Bawa, who is the CEO of Grow Capitus. Now, if you've spent any time at all in the commercial real estate industry, there's a good chance you probably have heard of Neil or seen some of his teachings. He has a great, great following and a great number of free uh, advice available online teaching you how to evaluate and choose the right types of real estate investment opportunities. Uh, He's affectionately known as the mad scientist of multifamily basically because of his background. So Neil was a technologist and actually still is a technologist, but he he created companies, technology companies and grew technology companies in Silicon Valley. And he's taken that same type of approach and same type of mindset and applied that to real estate, to multifamily real estate. And what you get is something really unique. Uh, you, Neil has a great, great system of how to evaluate opportunities very, very quickly, and then how to manage and how to advance that multifamily property after it's been acquired. Uh, he is a huge proponent of outsourcing and systematizing your company. So today's episode was a hell of a lot of fun to, to make with Neil. I loved being able to hear how all of this started. Uh, and then we got into some of the tips and techniques that he uses today to, again, evaluate properties, evaluate locations, and run opportunities. So without further ado, here is Neil Bawa on Pass the Secret Sauce. Well, it's very frugal. We grew up, you know, in a lower middle class neighborhood in India, in Mumbai. And I remember that we would get chicken once a week. And so that was like the highlight of our dinner table, you know, Mm -hmm. the the day that we had chicken, because the rest of the time you were just basically eating staple foods. And I think that I, I say this in the, with the best possible intent, but I almost feel like everyone should have some phase of their life where there's financial stress Mm -hmm. or, you know, you don't know what the future looks like, because I think that it truly builds character in a way that's almost impossible. I, you know, my kids are good kids. They have good hearts. 
but they have grown up as princes. They have grown up in a huge house with, you know, and they've never, you know, had a need for anything. And I feel like you get a, a warped sense of the world when that happens. And, and there's really no way to avoid that. So, so I love the fact that the kitchen table for at least five or six years when I was growing up was, uh, was bare. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more. I think, I think it really does prepare you for so many different things in life, you know, going through those challenges early on and that. So could not agree more. That was a fantastic answer. Did you have kids or uh, uh, siblings as well? I had two. I, I had a brother and a sister and they were twins. They were younger than me. So I, my dad died when they were, they were six, I think they were, well, they were like five. And so mm-hmm. I was also dad for them, right? So I was elder brother. I was six years older. So I was, you know, I was their dad figure growing up. So I had to be very careful around the dinner table on what to say and what not to say mm-hmm. so that they wouldn't feel bad. So you're sort of a leader very, very early on. So, had to be, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's great. So talk a little bit about you know, what, what happened next. Were you, were you the entrepreneurial type growing up? Were you the one who was always trying to sell something or you know make some money here and there? Or when did the entrepreneurialism bug finally hit you? Um, no, actually, it was the exact other way. I, my mom always said, you know, Neil, you're really set up to be an officer kind. You know, you go to work, you work, you come back, you watch TV, you go to sleep. You're not really set up to be the entrepreneurial kind. You're not set up to open your own business. And sadly enough, I think I believed her. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that what I realized today that I've always had very strong entrepreneurial ability. So this is one where you kind of take the wrong thing from your parents' belief. And so I finished, you know, my computer science degree, went to work for a huge company with 27,000 employees and for basically wasted six years of my life working for them, mm-hmm. you know, going to work, coming back at five o'clock and watching TV and then going to sleep. And so, and, you know, right around the six year mark, I, I just felt burned out. I felt like there was something wrong with my life and I needed to take more risks and so I went to my uncle who was moving to the U.S. and I said, I'd like to go to the U.S. I've always loved the U.S. And I know that people like me with the kind of skills that I have are in very much in demand. This was the late 90s, right? Mm-hmm. So this place was blowing up. Silicon Valley, just they were desperate for, uh, you know, engineers. And she so was like, yeah, you know, but you're, you're usually the laid back kind. You, do you, do you want to get into something that's going to be really problematic? You understand that, you know, it's, it's a big fight. You don't just go there and get the red carpet rolled out. And it didn't happen. I mean, it, it was the first year here was a real struggle, despite the fact that I had the, the right degree and the right experience. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my first car in the U.S. was $450. Mm-hmm. And I'm proud to say that I sold it nine months later at $550. <laughs> so, so I made a hundred bucks on that car. And, and, and so it was very tough. I mean, you know, I, I, I slept on hand-me-down mattresses and I slept in the garage of my aunt's home in, in Fremont, California. So I, I did that piece. And I realized as I went through that piece, that wasn't very hard for me. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you, you kind of going through it, roughing it out, it was okay, no big deal. And so I realized that I had to do more entrepreneurial stuff. But then I got derailed again when a company made me an offer. I accepted their offer. And two years later, I was the VP of the company. And then I got the chance to basically be what is known as an intrapreneur. Mm-hmm. An entrepreneur opens companies, you know, kind of launches companies and, and works on them. An intrapreneur does the same thing inside of a company. Mm-hmm. So the, the CEO of the company's name's Paul was a visionary. He's a very, very smart guy. 
Iranian guy that had a, a PhD and a master's degree, I think uh, from two different universities here, like genius level smart. And I think what he realized was that I was the kind of guy that loved launching companies, but I wasn't really truly comfortable with going out there and doing it myself. I'd like to do it under an umbrella. Mm -hmm. So he allowed me to basically take crazy ideas that I had and, and, and make those ideas come to life. And uh, we launched four companies, three of them succeeded. One of them wow. never grew beyond $100,000 a, a month in revenue. So we eventually shut it down after trying for three years, even mm -hmm. though it was profitable. It, it was just too distracting you know, compared to the other businesses. And so we went from, and it was predominantly in the education arena. So technology education, mm -hmm you know, uh, emergency medical services, education, nursing education. So we kind of created all these companies and then sold them together as one package deal on one day in 2013. Oh, wow. So from 1992 to you know, 1999 to 2013, we were building these companies together mm -hmm. as two partners. Uh, I was a junior partner. He was a senior partner. So it was really nice to be able to be an entrepreneur and still be inside a company, still have a salary and still know that mm -hmm. it was there. So uh, in, in hindsight, Matt, I, I feel like it was bad for me. But while I was going through it, it still felt good to create these new companies and still basically have the confidence that, you know, I had a W-2 salary. Mm -hmm. I just feel like I didn't stretch far enough because of that. You know, there, there was just a comfort zone. Yeah, yeah. So so you you stretch outside of that comfort zone. Is, is this when you got into real estate at that point? Yeah, yeah. So 2013 was when we sold that company. And I'd been doing real estate for a while before that. Okay. I was, uh, I got into real estate in reverse. We decided to build our own campus instead of renting from other people. And so the, the CEO basically threw me, you know, straight into the water there saying, you know, you, you helped me build it. And he knew a lot. I mean, he knew a lot more than I did about building and constructing these things. And so obviously the mentorship was phenomenal, but I had to learn an incredible amount about real estate mm -hmm. when building a campus from scratch. So, I mean, most people start with a minor rehab of a room. I started with a $6 million <laughs> campus that had to be ready on July 4th, 2004. Yeah. Otherwise we had a $10,000 a day penalty to our landlord, General Motors. Wow. Wow. So we paid one day, we paid $10,000 for one day, but it was ready. Yeah. And there was a lot of you know sleeping bags going on, basically sleeping there so that we could get things done faster just to build it. And then I caught the real estate bug and I, I, I started basically investing in real estate using technology. So that's what I'm known for. I'm, I'm known mm -hmm. as the mad scientist. And my brand is the basically the use of technology in different aspects of real estate and using that to 10X our business. So, so talk a little bit about some of the things that you're, some of the applications that you're using technology in. What, you know, what are you, how are you using it to, I don't know, maybe identify a property or, or identify areas. Can you talk a little bit about how, how that works? Sure. I'll start with an anecdote of how I did it, and then I'll talk about how I use it today, right? Okay. So, so it's 2009. I'm making a lot of money from my tech company, and, but the, you know, the real estate world is falling apart. You know, everyone's saying, oh my God, the worst thing to invest in is real estate. And I'm a data scientist. I'm a math guy. I'm a numbers guy. And I'm looking at the numbers and I'm saying, but these numbers look so much better than they did two years ago. How mm -hmm. could you possibly say it's the, the worst time to invest? It seems like all the time that you guys were investing the last three or four years, those were bad times. This now seems like a good time, but nobody wanted to listen to me. My, my family threatened to basically stop talking to me if I invested <laughs> in real estate. And I just didn't listen to anybody. So I said, you know what? I'm going to prove you guys wrong. The math is completely against you. 
instead of buying one rental home, I'm going to buy 10. I'm going to buy okay. 10 rental homes and I'm going to buy them in the same place, but I'm going to use mathematics and I'm going to show you how I'm going to use math. And so it became like a stubborn thing for me where I was basically up against my family who was just saying, no, 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 don't invest in, in real estate. And I, I, I have a clan, not a family, like 42 people, right? Okay. So <laughs> like the, all these people are like suddenly disowning Neil because yeah. he's doing this real estate thing in the middle of a real estate crash. So what I do is I go to this guy, Ukrainian hacker, and I basically say, you know, could you please spider the Zillow website for me? So the next mm -hmm. day he comes back with the whole website. I'm glad that the FBI was knocking down at my door. <laughs> so he comes back with the whole website and Excel spreadsheet and I sort it and I say, what cities in the US dropped the most from peak to, 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 you know, to trough, right? So 2005 mm -hmm. peak, 2009 trough. And it turns out it's a Californian city, yay. So I get in my car the next day and I drive 144 miles to uh, Madeira, which is near Fresno. And I basically drive into the city and, and I realize why the cities dropped the most. Kaufman and Broad, which is one of the biggest builders in the US, built an entire brand new section of the city. And they basically had all these farm workers using undocumented income buy all these properties. By 2009, all the farm workers had left. Yeah. So the entire section of the city was empty. And so I go to a builder and I say, how much are these worth? He says, well, they're selling for 90,000, but the new cost of construction is 180 to 200K. So I said, so if I wanted to build one today, it would cost me 200K? He said, yes. So I said, but they're, they're brand new. Nobody's ever lived in them. They're, they're $90,000. He said, yeah, there's only one problem, Neil, and you have to solve that problem. There are no renters here at this point of time. All the renters are 22 miles away in Fresno. And I'm like, so if I could figure out how to get renters here, I would be making a lot of money. You'd be like, yeah, you you'd just buy as many as you could, right? So I went to a bank and I put 10 of them under contract. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I, I need more than 30 days. I need more time. But banks those days, they were like, you know, yeah, absolutely. Take as much time as you want. I mean, they were desperate, yeah. right? Yeah. They wanted anybody and any, anybody to take this stuff off their hands. So I put 10 of these under contract for under a million bucks. And I go off to Fresno the next day. And I go to Fresno and I go to a, an agent and I say, I want to buy an older property in Fresno. I don't want to buy a bigger property. I don't want to buy one that you built in 2006. I want something that's like 20 years old and is smaller, maybe three bedrooms. So he finds me a property on Summerfield Drive. We, we go basically put that property in escrow. And then I go back to my Ukrainian hacker and I say, I want you to look at every rental listing website in the US. Figure out how to hack him. So instead of one listing, you get 50 or 100 listings, mm -hmm. right? Figure out how to do it. And he, he figured out like 12 different ways that he taught me and, and, and bombard me with an absolute avalanche, a mountain of leads about this one property in Fresno. Yeah. So he's like, I don't know what the heck you're doing, but hey, I'm getting paid. So I'm going to shut up and, and do it, right? So within three or four days, I start getting an absolute, all I've sent him as are pictures and descriptions of this one Fresno property. I'm getting an absolute bombardment of leads. So what, what I do is basically I hire a person in the Philippines and I have her process these leads. And, and one of the things that we start telling people is that, you know, we, that, that property we think is gone. We think of, there's a lot of interest in it, but there's these uh -huh. other properties. They're 22 miles away. They're brand new. Here's a bunch of pictures and a bunch of videos. So I, I, I paid $500 to a videographer to take these exquisite pictures. You know, the ones mm -hmm. that are super saturated, look phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And we're sending them videos of property after property after property. And, and people are like, no, 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 this is bullshit. I don't want to go to Madeira. I, I live in Fresno. But if you get a mountain of leads, only one person has mm -hmm. to agree to check a property out of every 100 leads. So 
in 30 days, we must have processed like three or 4,000 leads. Wow, wow. And, and doing them in real time, 12 hours a day, this, the Filipinos just pounding the phones and sending yeah. text messages. And we're like all like on top of it. And, and we had to do it very quickly because you can't keep the properties in contract forever. Yeah. You have to pay for them, right? right? So there's a point at which your money is going to go hard. Your, your deposit is going to go hard. So we had to figure out how to fill them. But I think 35 days later, I had $11,000 in cash flow. Wow. Now, all of this done through basically the use of technology. Clearly, Madeira had dropped the most. It had dropped 71% from 2005 yeah. to 2009. And so that was the first use of technology. And then the use of technology to basically hack all of these sites on the internet to get 10x the lead flow. Yeah. And then the third one is the use of outsourcing to process those leads to get these people in. And it worked, right? So I became addicted not to real estate, but Matt, I became addicted to hacking real estate with technology. Mm -hmm. And so the rest of my career has been a long string of those sorts of things, but this is how it all started. And, and I really didn't use these, these exact things again, so I can, I can tell you what I did next, but, but that was it. it was, there was this, this addiction, this high of saying, I use tech to do things that 10x my my revenue my potential benefit just so you know i own all of those properties now and the you know the the revenue from them is absolutely phenomenal because i've only got like fifty thousand dollars left on these all of these properties in terms of my principal but they're all yeah. worth three hundred thousand dollars each right that's so there's fantastic so so bottom line is i mean it just it changed my life even though my big fat tech salary was still bigger all of a sudden i felt free I felt yeah. like I didn't have to work 16 hours a day. I, there's always this fear with tech people that, you know, your boss is going to realize that he can hire three young guns, you know, for the same price that he's paying you and get rid of you and hire those three guys. My boss wasn't like that. You know, he, he, was, he was great. But you always have the fear in the back of your mind, right? Yeah. So you're just killing yourself with the tech job. And when this happened, I stopped killing myself. I started yeah. saying, if he fires me, you know what? I, I, you know, my, my lifestyle is paid for, right? I'm not making as much money, but it's no big deal, right? Life will go on. Yeah. So, I mean, real estate really saved my soul. No, I love that. I love that. Did you, did you continue scaling up with single families or, or when did you make the jump into multifamily? So it took a while. I mean, so I did duplexes, I did quadplexes, I did collections of triplexes. So it was a, it was a gradual process, but but what really happened was not buying properties. What really happened was me starting to say, what else can I hack or change or use technology in? So it was, it was really a jihad. It was a crusade and it had nothing to do with buying properties. It was just mm -hmm. all about, it seems like this real estate people, they're different from us geeks in that they don't think like us, they don't mm -hmm. behave like us. So maybe there's an angle here that I can, I can use and then I can publish it on the web and tell people about it, right? So there was this great, like everything had to be published on the web. So what I started doing was, so I went to another guy and I said, I want to spider the Census Bureau website, the BLS website. I want to spider Zillow and Trulia and all these other websites. And I want to build a big database because I'm going to try and figure out the answer to the question what are the best cities in America to invest in? And what are the best neighborhoods in those cities? So mm -hmm. that question became an absolute fanatic obsession for me, right? So I was like, I have to be able to answer this in a quantitative way. Mm -hmm. And then within that quantitative way, I have to be able to answer it in a qualitative way. 
right? Yeah. Those are the two things that geeks like us care about. We want quant quantitative analysis, but then we want qualitative analysis. So what we did was we built this database and we stuck it into this statistical software called R, right? The okay. software is yeah. actually just called R. Yeah. Stuck it in there. And we started to throw lots of different parameters in there to see what really affected real estate investors' profit, mm -hmm. right? So in the end goal was like, there's this city, people are making shitloads of profit there. What, what is causing that? What are the things that if we throw into our analysis immediately point to this city? Because we know the city is doing really, really well and people mm -hmm. are making huge amounts of profit. So if you keep throwing those, those factors in, does it point directly to that city? So that's what we did. And, and I'm trying to kind of dumb it down here because it was a very you know, complicated algorithm. But in the end, here's the answer to all this, this skullduggery was that five things made the big difference. Cities that had these five things going for them, everybody made money. Even the ones that were buying foolishly made money simply okay. because there was a huge upward momentum. All ships rose all the time, right? So it was population growth, job growth, income growth, home price growth, and crime reduction. Okay. These were the big five. And people immediately, the moment I say this, people are like, no, no, but you didn't look at, at schools. You didn't look at poverty levels. And the answer is, I did. I stuck in the schools and ended up with the same exact list of cities. So when I took the schools out, because the list was the same and I wanted the simplest possible system, mm -hmm. I didn't do schools. You want to add school, go, schools, go at it. I mean, I'm sure there's a, a benefit. My, my focus was, what is the smallest number of factors that gives me the same list of city as the big list of factors, mm -hmm. right? That mm -hmm. way I can dumb it down and make it simple because my goal was to give the system away for free. No strings attached. Nobody needs my email address and, and people use it to become better you know, investors. It was supposed to be like a, a Wikipedia sort of thing. Virtus Technology is a custom business software solution provider. Are you tired of manual entry into an old system that creates more work than it helps? Does your company suffer from constant pain and frustration around its business processes? Do you spend a lot of time and money trying to hunt information down or figure out what is happening in your business. Virtus Technology can help solve all of this. We evaluate your current processes and then create custom software or mobile apps to automate and streamline your business process, eliminating a lot of those pains and frustrations. Unlike other systems, our goal is to digitize your current processes and systems so that your staff's learning curve is very small. If you're ready to take your business operations to the next level, Give Virtus Technology a call today. And so, so we did that. Then we basically switched to the neighborhoods and we found five other factors for neighborhoods, simpler fa sim similar factors like, like poverty level, uh, ethnic mix, right? So mm -hmm. neighborhoods with a ethnic mix that was diverse were very easy to rent up. But neighborhoods uh -huh. that had one ethnic mix, like all whites, all blacks, all you know, Latinos, was very difficult because most of your leads got wasted. People would come, show up, waste your time, but then they'd realize everyone living in here is a Latino and uh, I'm not Latino, I'm Chinese. I'm not gonna live here, right? Yeah. So they would waste a lot of your time. So we, we, we found that actually, if there was a, an ethnic mix, which had lots of different ethnicities, you had a much higher chance of closing your marketing leads, right? For tenants. Mm -hmm. So those sorts of things. So we figured it all out and we, then, we, then we put it on our website and then we realized that very few people were looking at it. I mean, the people that looked at it absolutely adored it. They loved it. They were like, oh my God, this is the, the best thing ever because in, in 
in 10 minutes, I can look at a city that I've never even heard of and mm -hmm. tell you things about it that a broker that lives in that city wouldn't be able to tell you, right? It was that powerful. But there were only like 50 people a month taking it. And so we'd like, okay, let's send an email to our database. And by now I was pretty famous, kind of a micro famous person in the, mm -hmm. in the geek that the, not the geek vertical, but the real estate geek vertical, yeah, right? So right, people right. that are, you know, in real estate, but are very geeky and like data. So I was, you know, famous within that vertical. And there were like all these thousands of people that knew me there. So I sent an email out to them and said, so we have this pro product, you've seen it, it's awesome. How do we have 10 or 50 times the people look at this? And that was actually a great email because the answer that came back was really straightforward. Three of the people that sent it back said, you need to look at online education portals, create a video course and stick it there. And so I Google it and the big one, biggest one is udemy.com, udmy.com. So I'm like, okay, maybe I can get 50 more people a month here. So I, you know, I, I spent about 20 days basically creating a video course that's about three hours long. And I stick it on udemy.com slash real focus. That was the name of the system. And it just exploded. I mean, wow. that, so if yesterday I was showing somebody how many students I have on that course right now, there are 6,420 people taking the course just wow. yesterday. Wow. Right? wow. And there are 600 five-star reviews, which are more reviews than all of the real estate courses on Udemy put together. And the average review is 4.8 out of five. So it just went nuts because people realize that this guy is a geek who's not even a real estate guy. He does something in mm -hmm. tech. He has a full tech time tech job, but he loves doing all this, you know, skullduggery with numbers, right? This geekery and then just gives it away. And so people loved that. And it gave me notoriety and gave me that mad scientist tag that, that I enjoy so much now, right? Because it, it urges me on to do new experiments. So it, and what it also gave me is a big database of people. You know, Udemy doesn't give me email uh, addresses of people, but they liked me so much, they'd find their way to me, mm -hmm. right? So they'd mm -hmm. find their way to multifamilyu.com, to GrowCapitus, you see that behind me, GrowCapitus.com, that's our website. Because by the time, by this time, I was beginning to transition into real estate. I was like, hey, people like what I'm doing. Why shouldn't I charge for it, right? Mm -hmm. So at some point when the company was sold, I took three months off, realized that, that retirement is an absolutely horrible concept when you're 40 years old, you know, you're just going to kill yourself. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was depressed. And then, so it's like, okay, what's next? And it's like, well, this technology real estate thing looks good. Let's try that. And, you know, I've already been doing some of these cool things, so I'm going to do more of it. And it was a very smooth transition because I had a big database. I had a bit big following. So I transitioned, ended up with over $300 million worth of real estate. Mm -hmm. uh, half of it is new construction. Half of it is, is uh, value add. There's some, uh, there's some student housing in there. We do industrial projects. We do public storage, but the core is multifamily. Okay. Okay. So, Excellent. So that, I mean, it, it, it all seems very planned out. It was horribly disjointed and sort of <laughs> things just happened but over all, a very long period of time. It's all come together though. No, that's a, that's, that's a hell of a story. God, there's so many different directions that we can go here. So are you still using a lot of outsourced workers at this point with, with your processes today? Absolutely. So yeah. uh, we have 24 employees at last count, maybe 25, and 18 of them are full-time employees that are outsourced. We believe that all companies, the perfect company today 
two thirds of the employees are outside the U.S. and one third are in the U.S. Mm -hmm. If you if you you know cut try to cut the U.S. piece anymore, the com company loses that flavor because Americans know what Americans want. Yeah. Right. So you lose that flavor. So we keep it at two thirds, one thirds, almost religiously, even though it's it's you know there's no mandate to do that, but it stays at that level. And they work in every aspect of the company. They're all full-time. They all work 40-hour weeks mm -hmm. and they all work U.S. time. So they are, they're not allowed to work any time except, you know, eight to five U.S. And so that portion of the business became huge. And then event, eventually I started writing courses, video courses on how to 10x your business using virtual assistants. And every time I hold that as a webinar, at least a thousand people show up. Wow. So I've heard that that's been the most productive course that people have taken from me. So these courses are all free. They're on multifamilyu.com. That's multifamily followed by the letter u.com. And we get about, I'd say about 50,000 people that sign up for our various deep dive webinars. And we do webinars on all kinds of things. We do yeah. town halls on impact of COVID on real estate, impact of COVID on student housing, impact of COVID on industrial, impact of COVID on multifamily, single family, right? I mean, these are very deep dive and we bring in people that are geeks. Yeah, We're a bunch of geeks and we tend to collect other geeks in our ecosystem. <laughs> and so, so we're pretty famous for that. No, I love it. I love it. So, so with your program, and, and I don't know if you dive into some of the tools that you use for managing the, the outsourced workers, you, does that, is that all covered in there? or um, It's is that very something? descriptive. So, yeah. I mean, that virtual assistant piece, it starts out for the first 20 minutes explaining how to recruit them okay. through a series of, I think, six demos. So it, it goes in looks at the actual websites, shows you the filters. There's about 12 filters that we use because the overall quality of virtual workers is awful. It's just mm -hmm. incredibly bad. And so these 12 filters allow you to get to the top 0.1%. And so I, you, you'll actually watch me doing 12 different filters. But then other than that, there's other filters. Even if you have good people, you need interviewing skills. So there are, we, mm -hmm. we show you how we filter people after we like them and say, yep, I want to interview this person. But then we have further filters in place, including disk tests that are free. So we give away, you know, these free disk test links mm -hmm. that most people don't know about. And then we go on, on how do we manage them? Like what are the, the best practices of managing virtual assistants? What do our reports look like? So we show li live reports. And then we talk about how do we embed them into our life. So I give people examples of how they make my life better, mm -hmm. not just my company better. So it's, it's extremely descriptive. I think there's 27 demos. Oh, that's, that's great. Did you, do you have, you know, what, what's next for you? Are you, are you, obviously we're going through the COVID event and, you know, there's all of this speculation, what's going to happen with real estate. Obviously you probably are still looking for, for deals at this point. What, what are some of the things that you're doing now that you're, you know, that we're in this, this position? So for me, I'm constantly looking at opportunities being created by stress. So one of the key things that people got, they, they have a gut feel that they know this, but they don't say it to themselves often enough is that distress creates more opportunity than boom times mm -hmm. always. And, and that's, that's magnified by a black swan event that's unlike anything else that we have ever seen. I mean, in my mind, in some ways, 
this event is more transformative than World War II. Mm -hmm. Not in all ways, but in some ways, because we have an economy where millions of CEOs had to learn how to work from home, mm -hmm. right? Work office habits didn't change in World War II because no one, no foreign soldier stepped on US soil. So as far as our country is concerned, it was not as transformative as Europe where basically the whole continent was demolished, mm -hmm. right? So here that didn't happen. So our, our, our work habits didn't change. But in the last four months, we have taught the most important people that drive our innovation and our businesses forward. These people are key to our future. All of them have been forced to learn how to run businesses from home. And that is an absolutely transformational change. There's no going back from that. And the impact of that is going to be much greater than the healthcare impact of COVID. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to minimize the healthcare impact of COVID. 130, 160,000 Americans are dead. So it's obviously a huge impact. What I'm trying to say is that if you compare a mountain to Everest, Everest is going to look better. The impact of COVID is much larger mm -hmm. in the way that it, it did two things. Um, well, three, I should say. Number one, what COVID has done is that it has changed the way we work forever. That is not a, something that we can go back to. And even if 80% of companies go back to where they were pre-COVID, it will be ridiculously transformational mm -hmm. because that means that 20% of companies in the US are working a different way. And that changes things in a way that's so radical that we can't even begin to explain that to people, right? So that was the first impact that it had. The second impact, which is tied to the first one is, that there's going to be a portion of the US workforce that does not need to live in expensive cities anymore. They don't mm -hmm. need to fight traffic. They don't need to live in these expensive places. They can go out and choose cities based on their interests. If they're skiers, they'll, go, they'll head to Provo, mm -hmm. right? If they, you know, they, they'll go to Idaho or Boise if they like, um, you know, canoeing or things like that. So they're going to be heading out. They're going to go to Montana if they like, you know, the, this, the ski slopes. I mean, so there's a lot of these amazing places in the U.S. that people have never lived in because they were nervous that their bosses truly didn't like work from mm -hmm. home. But now that companies are making announcements and CEOs are working from home, it becomes much easier to take that step. And that changes the way real estate is done in this country. When I'm in such a transformative time, to answer your question, I'm doing a lot. I mean, I am looking on the one side, creating funds to buy distressed hotels. Mm -hmm. on, the, on the other side, I'm buying industrial because the third and final transformative effect of COVID was this. E-commerce grows five times the speed of the U.S. economy. The U.S. economy runs at 2% GDP growth. E-commerce runs at about 10%. So mm -hmm. it's already 5x the U.S. economy. It's the fastest vertical in the U.S. economy. In the last 12 months, which included all these COVID months, e-commerce grew at 77%, while the U.S. economy grew at zero. Yeah. Right? So at the very least, you can say it's 77 times faster, right? So... What, what has just happened, Matt, is that seven years of e-commerce growth has come in four months, mm -hmm. right? And that is also something that we can step back on. I had used DoorDash three times in the two years before COVID, all in three times when I was in a food desert somewhere checking out a property, yeah. right? I've now used it 15 or 20 times in just the last four months. 
I don't think that changes because now all of my favorite places, I've got you know DoorDash plugged in. So now it's just pick up iPad, click DoorDash, click repeat, done. Yeah. That's how many clicks there are. Maybe there's two more clicks, but you know it takes a roughly 10 seconds to order food now. Yeah. Yep. Right. And I'm a technology guy and I wasn't doing it before. Right. Imagine how many non-technology portions of the workforce were forced, forced to do these online things. My wife's a school teacher and has now learned Zoom and has now learned Google Classroom, something that you couldn't hold a gun to her head to do. She, mm -hmm. she had no choice. That was yeah. the only way to connect to students. So the, the economy becomes digitalized in a way that is almost radical because it was forced on us. And that third change means that we need more industrial and warehousing in this, in this country, and we need a lot less retail. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking at plays on retail conversion. I'm looking at building industrial warehouses throughout the United States in key markets where freeways intersect, like Salt Lake City is a place where freeways intersect. And then that whole North Carolina to, to Georgia, Atlanta area is where freeways intersect because there's gonna be just so much shipping, right? Yeah, yeah. And I have an anecdote about that that I think um, is, is relevant. So I've always ordered a truckload of stuff from Amazon. Mm -hmm. So I've always had trouble with on Thursday morning when the trash guy comes in, my, my recycle bin is always you know, full. And so what I've been doing is, and my neighbors know this, I, you know, on Thursday morning, I wake up early and I go around basically filling up other people's recycle bins. And most of the time, there's a little bit of space in other people's bins. In the last four months, I haven't been put, able to put one box in other people's bins. Yeah. I've, I've seen other people roaming around on Thursday mornings <laughs> trying to find empty bins. Yeah. Right? So things change. And so today is a great time because there's stress, there's distress. And most of that distress is ahead of us. I mean, very, very little distress has happened in real estate at this point. I, I can't even really point to something and say, that's distressed. But there, it isn't because it takes time, right? Mm -hmm. So the next 12 months are filled with opportunity. Why wouldn't I take advantage of it? Yeah, no, I love that. that that's fantastic advice. Neil, if someone wanted to learn more about you, about any of your products, you've mentioned Udemy a couple of different times, what, what, where would you direct them? Where would you say is the best place to, to send them? I think that you know, whether you're interested in investing in you know, technology-driven syndications or you're interested in learning how to do what we do, because we teach boot camps about that, or you're interested in just taking our massive array of free courses, the best place to go to is multifamilyu.com. That's multifamily followed by the letter u.com. The other option is if you want to listen to about, uh, I've been on about 200 podcasts now, is just to type N-E-A-L, Neil, Bawa, B-A-W-A, and hit enter in Google. I have the extreme fortune and extreme misfortune of being the only Neil Bawa on the World Wide Web. So <laughs> the first three or 400 articles are all about me. There's podcasts, there's conferences that I'm presenting at that have published their, their videos of the conference. So, and, and then all kinds of geeky articles from me. So watch out, geek alert. Love it. Love it. No, this is fantastic, Neil. I, we could go on forever and ever. I, I have so many different questions for you. So perhaps in the future, we can uh, get together again and sure. uh, do another, another episode. But, uh, but thanks for the time today. And uh, thanks for sharing your secret sauce. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. And remember, pass the secret sauce.